Welcome to New Narrative Southeast Asia Dispatches. I'm your host, Bonibel Rambatan, Editorial Manager for New Narrative. New Narrative is a movement to democratize democracy in Southeast Asia, and this podcast is one of the ways we attempt to do just that. Based on April 2023 figures from the Home Ministry of Malaysia, a total of 1,030 children, 43% of whom are girls, are currently being held in 19 immigration detention centers across Malaysia. Two-thirds of these are unaccompanied and separated children. There are also youngsters who are stateless, offspring of migrant workers, and potentially unidentified children who have been smuggled into Malaysian prison centers. Detention centers are horrible, horrible places. But we're not going to get into the details of its horrors here. Plenty has been written about that, including by our guest today. But over 1,000 children are still in detention centers. Can you imagine? The thing is, releasing them has been, sadly, no more than political discoursing, especially here in Malaysia. We've been at this for 12 years. The latest, at the time of recording, was Home Affairs Minister Saifuddin Nasution declaring on February 15, 2023, that he would transfer children from immigration detention centers to non-governmental welfare organizations. This isn't the first time a Malaysian minister has indicated the necessity to release children from immigration detention centers. So, naturally, questions remain. There are alternatives to detention that ensure proper administration of migration in kinder, more successful, and less expensive ways that do not include arrest or imprisonment. We call this Alternatives to Detention, or ATD. But if that's so promising, why hasn't there been any concrete action? Hi everyone, uh, so it's great to be here again. Uh, I am New Narrative's uh, post-migration researcher, and I recently wrote uh, two articles on uh, child detention. Uh, one of them um, explains the basics of uh, children in immigration detention centers, and the second article uh, is about uh, the struggle to end child uh, immigration detention. That is Joshua Lowe whom regular listeners might be familiar with. He's a returning guest on this podcast, currently working as a forced migration researcher in New Narrative. Hi everyone, I'm Hera Jamunadin. I'm the Asia-Pacific Program Officer with the International Detention Coalition. And as part of my job, I work very closely with civil society, governments and other allies towards ending immigration detention and advocating for alternatives to detention, ATD. Um, and in, as part of my work, I've become quite the expert on child immigration detention as well. That is Hannah Jambunathan, Asia-Pacific Program Officer in the International Detention Coalition. Prior to IDC, she worked in the areas of gender equality, capacity building, community mobilization, advocacy, research, and youth empowerment. In this episode, we'll talk about children in Malaysia's immigration detention centers, what the deal is with the holdup in the Malaysian government, and what researchers and non-researchers can do to help advocacy moving forward. Joshua, can you tell us about your research, especially um, children in immigration, right? Who are they and why are they detained and usually for how long? You know, Can you talk us through a bit about the context here? Yeah, uh, happy to do that. Um, so my, my, my two explainer uh, really centers around uh, children. And the first explainer talks about the who, why, how long, and 
and and where uh, our children are detained in in uh, Malaysia's immigration detention centers. Uh, so generally, when you talk about uh, uh, children in detention centers, it's it's really important to know that um, it's not a monolith. There are uh, many different kinds of children with different realities, overlapping uh, migratory realities and contrasting realities. So you have refugee children, you have children of labor migrants, uh, stateless children, and potentially also uh, traffic survivors. Um, and and the last part is is quite key because uh, that has to do a lot with the uh, poor uh, traffic victim uh, identification system that we have in, in Malaysia, whereby uh, children have to proactively uh, um, rec uh, identify themselves as as uh, traffic survivors uh, before they are actually given protection. And on average, you could say uh, there are about 1,300 uh, children detained um, at, at different times. Uh, in the last 10 years, we, we've seen that uh, the number fluctuates. Um, and... Uh, but it usually revolves around like about thousand, thousand three. Um, and the other thing to note is that, uh, they can be detained indefinitely. So there is actually no, uh, uh, fixed time that they can be detained. Uh, there are those who are detained for months. Uh, there are those who are detained for years. Uh, they are, um, there, there is no, uh, fixed, fixed duration. And finally, you know, you asked the question about why. Um, so children are detained because they are seen um, without exception as uh, in violation of the of Malaysia's Immigration Act of 1959-61. And the problem with the act is that it does not uh, distinguish between uh, whether you're a refugee or whatever your migratory status is, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're sick, as long as you've um, arrived in Malaysia uh, or you've stayed in Malaysia, uh, without uh, irregularly, you could be detained. Uh, now, all of that being said, so um, there are also uh, those children who are detained arbitrarily uh, because they were they were in places where there was there were raids, uh, and arbitrarily not necessarily because they do not have uh, status. Um, um, yeah, so uh, there is a lot that we do not know that happens in detention centers. It's quite an open system. Just hearing about this, just hearing about the concept of children in detention centers, it already brought, it already brings to mind a lot of like, you know, harmful images and like pretty uh, scary images. Uh, but Hannah, you produced uh, a research report and you work a lot with with with, uh, with this issue as well. You produced a research report titled Impact of Prolonged Immigration Detention on Rohingya Families and Communities in Malaysia, which explored the varying ways in which, you know, the immigration detention can directly and indirectly harm the children. Could you tell us more about what these harms look like and how they how they manifest how they yeah how what they are essentially thanks bonnie for that question and thanks josh um for your answer earlier i also just wanted to build on something that you said and i think it's just important to highlight is that i think a lot of people sometimes get um confused because of course it is a form of detention um, but I think it's important to highlight that immigration detention in Malaysia and in most places in the world is an administrative tool, which means that the people that are detained, the children that are, de are de that are detained have not committed any crimes. Immigration detention is just used as a tool of migration management to hold people um, as they await deportation or repatriation. And I think that's important for people to understand. I don't think that's... Um, 
as you said, um, because of the Malaysian immigration law um, and people being seen in contrary to that, it can be interpreted that they're criminals, but they're not. They actually haven't committed any crime. They simply are existing, um, unfortunately, without documents um, due to their different contexts and backgrounds. And I'm wanting to get back to your question. Um, thanks for that. And I think, yes, this the research that we wrote, it did explore the different ways that immigration detention um, has an impact not just on children, but on families and communities. The specific community that the research report focused on was the Rohingya, but a lot of the findings we found were generalizable to larger refugee populations as well. Um, to start getting into it, clinical studies and research. It's always a good way to open a, a statement is to say clinical studies and research from all corners of the world actually have reiterated over and over again that immigration detention has a really serious impact on a child um, from their physical health to their mental health and well-being and also with their familial relationships. So conditions in detention are known to be generally inhumane and quite traumatizing. In Malaysia, multiple reports, especially from Suhakam, our National Human Rights Commission, have shown that immigration detention conditions in Malaysia have poor hygiene standards, inadequate nutrition, inadequate sanitation facilities, um, no access to play or education, and are often severely overcrowded. So in these conditions, children are exposed to a myriad of health issues, such as skin diseases, you know, respiratory tract infections, TB, gastrointestinal issues, and malaria. And our research report, it didn't add anything new, but it definitely affirmed and reiterated these findings as well, with several of our key informants coming forth to talk about the trauma that children face when being in detention, especially when they're separated from their parents, and how the lack of access to facilities, the lack of access to play and stimulation further puts children at risk of de developmental regression. I think the report also severely highlighted, sorry, the report also highlighted the severe impact that children face from a psychological perspective. So the turmoil that they face as children in detention, they have no understanding of why they're there, why they're being treated so badly, why they're not allowed to be free. Some, some of our key informants correctly highlighted that detention facilities treat children like criminals, and of course they're not. And the trauma from being in detention is unbearable and continues to impact long after the period of detention is over. And that can be whether the period of detention is a few days, a few weeks, months or years. Um, these are the findings that our research report reaffirmed and that has been confirmed multiple times by global studies. I would also like to talk a little bit about the indirect impacts of immigration detention that children experience, which are significantly less researched. And these are some of the more unique findings that the report posited. So this is, this is what happens to children, the impact that children face when their parents or guardians are detained or wider family or community members. How do they experience that? How does that affect them? So the several points I'd like to highlight is that that can cause severe harm to family structures and family structures and relationships. So what happens here is when a parent is detained, this can cause quite harmful damage to how they relate to their child, the development of their relationships and bonding with their children. And equally, detention, immigration detention can separate families, not just through detention, but also the process of deportation or repatriation. And this also, of course, 
where literally separates a family, separates parents and children. And all this can cause a severe distortion of who a child's parents are, who their family is, which understandably has an impact on their well-being and their stability. And coming to the end of my spiel now, um, another really important point that I want to highlight that this research put forth was showing how there's a severe knockdown effect or a domino effect of detention of breadwinners. So what can happen, the, the impact that children can face when their family breadwinner is detained, again, is just several different harms. One clear one is that they, when the breadwinner is detained, they have to drop out of informal education um, because they don't have access to any form formal education in Malaysia. So they do have to drop out of informal education. Some of them have to begin working which is, of course, not great and not right for children to be doing that. And I would like to highlight that young girls especially face a higher risk of gender-based violence because of their, they face increased vulnerabilities, they face, face a higher risk of exploitation, forced marriage and prostitution when there's no source of income for the family to be able to sustain themselves. And further, when others are detained, not even necessarily family members, but even community members, especially for a close-knit community that relies on each other quite a lot, this can increase the general sense of um, lack of safety and increases their own fear and risk of detention. And what happens is that they, they close in to protect themselves. The children aren't able to go out. Again, not able to access schools, not able to access um, health clinics, and some of them even have to move out of their homes, move out of their communities. They sleep in forests to avoid um, getting detained. Sometimes they move cities. And all of this is extremely destabilizing. You're uprooting yourself. You're losing your contacts. And yeah, it's just, there's no way that immigration detention is not harmful to children, whether directly or indirectly. And I'll end by saying, you know, immigration detention is proven, it's a fact that it has inherent, detrimental and long-lasting impacts on child's development, physical and mental health well-being. Uh, yeah, thank you, Hannah. Um, it paints a very um, morbid, or at least, you know, um, very scary picture of, of like of, of the children detention there which uh, Joshua you also echoed in your in your articles there which also um, you also brought up the point Joshua that remember that we are funding these abuses of children through our taxpayer money as well which is like you know it's a it's also creates this very um, this this very strange condition in which uh, we are you know the government is making us pay for chil these these children to be abused. Um, do you have any other? Uh, do you have any points, or that you might like to add on these on these harms and this uh, situation, Joshua? Yeah, I. Um, so my my experience also do draw on uh, IDC's uh, report, IDC and the Danish Refugee Council's report, which uh, Hannah uh, Hannah uh, was involved in. And what really struck me was how um, uh, the researchers. Uh, Hannah and others wrote that, that the community essentially freezes uh, when when a community member uh, uh, is detained. Um, that nobody goes out, even to schools, uh, to work or to clinics. And and I mean to just throw out some stats uh, in terms of the physical harm. Um, you know, between twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two, over five hundred and sixty eight people died, uh, including seven children in detention centers, um, and. 
yeah, you have to really think about the lifelong scarring, the language development delay, emotional regulation difficulties, um, PTSD that the children and their families face. Uh, so just really wanted to, to put, it, put it out there and, and it's just so very important to, to remember that any form of detention, uh, no matter how good the conditions are in the detention center, um, is a bad thing because you're depriving the, the child from, from normalcy and, uh, security and, uh, you know, play, uh, and, but, but most, most importantly is liberty. At the same time, yeah, yeah, Bonnie, I think you mentioned a very, very important point about cost. Um, that detention centers, uh, do cost. And in my explainer, I actually do talk about the, the cost of detaining. Let's say we're detaining a thousand three hundred children. Uh, you know, uh, what's the cost, uh, per day, per, per month and per year? You're looking at, uh, up to 42 million ringgit. Um, it's, uh, if you were to use the 90 ringgit, uh, per person cost, which was, uh, uh, released by parliament. Um, uh, but yeah, you can read it, the explainers, the, the range of cost. Um, and, and that brings us to the, the, the next point is that, you know, what are the alternatives? Um, and there are alternatives, uh, that are cheaper, uh, um, and studies show that alternatives to detention are 80 to 90 percent uh, cheaper. It's a safer, more humane. Uh, yeah, but maybe we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more later on. Yeah, no, uh, that's, a, that's a great point that I do want to uh, segue into, especially because, Hannah, you mentioned that uh, detention centers are an administrative tool, although they like they often function as a punitive and incarcerative um, practices, right? So there must be alternatives to, to these things, especially if, Joshua, you also mentioned... Um, is more cost effective even so even looking at a very cold-hearted economist lens it should make more sense but yeah I'll, I'll, Hannah, I'll, I'll let you speak about uh the alternatives to detention thanks bonnie and thanks josh for providing that good segue um alternatives to detention also known as etd which is a bit easier to say can sometimes be tough to understand and explain because it doesn't really have a strict definition i think the best way to understand it is ATD uh, more humane, um, effective, and as Joshua said, affordable measures or practices to govern migration without relying on immigration detention as a tool? That's the best way to um, explain it. What ATD can look like, I'm hoping that these different examples can give people a more concrete understanding of how ATD can actually be put into practice. So ATD can look like laws, policies and practices that are rights-based and that are geared towards not detaining people for immigration-related reasons. ATD can also look like formal or informal initiatives that are human rights-focused. It can be community placement. ATD can be holistic case management. And ATD can also look like the screening and assessments of migrants and refugees. So, for example, what you're seeing here is that there are just different ways to develop and implement ATD that are focusing on looking after the rights of fellow human beings and not punishing them due to their immigration status. I would also like to highlight uh, a helpful uh, way to also understand ATD is to understand what ATD is not. And ATD is not closed or restricted shelters. Again, and drawing on what Josh, Josh said earlier as well, these shelters fundamentally... Um, continue to deprive someone of their liberty 
and any form of deprivation of liberty is also a form of detention and is never acceptable for people and especially for children. ETD is also not focused on isolating refugees and migrants from host communities. ETD is not monitoring and tracking people. And again, ETD, and tying this back to my earlier point, ETD is also not relating to people who have been, who have been convicted of criminal charges. Is that helpful to understand ETD? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and it's um, it makes it makes a lot of sense. It's essentially, it's it's not, you know, um, it's called alternatives to, to, to detention or ATD. So it's like alternatives of conducting the administration of of these of, of migrant communities that are less harmful, right? That's that's the gist of it, right? So um, if uh, if if that's if if there's a lot of um, benefits to that, if like we can reduce, uh, it is right space and we can reduce harm, you know, and also it's more cost effective. But as of April 2023, the pilot is yet to be implemented, right? And no children are being released as far as I understand. So why, well, why is, uh, what's the hold up there? Why is, why is it still, why do we still not, moving forward in a very clear and, uh, yeah, a clear practical direction. What are the major factors that are leading to this strange situation? Thanks, Bonnie. Really quite a tough question to answer because, of course, I'm not privy to the internal workings of government <laughs> too closely. Maybe I, what I can, how I can answer it is that I can work backwards from what I advocate for the calls to action that I try to um, share with the government around ATD. Some of the reasons that I think the ATD pilot hasn't, so the ATD pilot was, I think, approved in 2021, launched in 2022, and um, implementation was supposed to be carried out from then until 2023 and beyond. Um, I think a key reason or a key factor why the ATD pilot has yet to be implemented is that there have been several changes in government in Malaysia. And what I always like to highlight to people that I speak to about this is that one government approved it, another government launched it, and another government is charged, uh, tasked with implementing it, which obviously doesn't make great for it, like any project management, any project implementation is going to suffer from having the project leads and the project team change constantly. So I think that was is probably a key reason behind that. I think it's generally... It's public information that the ATD pilot had quite strict criteria. It did exclude the Rohingya community, for example, which is uh, one of the largest refugee populations in Malaysia. And it was also, the ATD pilot was also deportation centric, meaning the only case resolution that was um, able to be achieved through the pilot was deportation or repatriation of people and children. I think these are some of the criteria that um, when it became time to implement the pilot, became uh, barriers rather than, um, yeah, became barriers to implementation as the criteria was too strict to actually be able to follow all the processes. Um, I think also something that I would like to highlight is generally around this um, deportation-centric point is that I think a change in mindset is necessary, not just within government, but with everyone, even within the public. Um, I think when we think about um, migration, we often approach it from a heavily securitized perspective. Uh, we're thinking about our border security and our national sovereignty and security. Um, and this is globally the way the discourse is 
focused. Um, a lot of it, of course, um, I guess propagated by Western understandings of um, security and borders as well. So I think when we think about how to govern migration, how to manage migration, it's always about protect our borders and it's very nationalistic and we have to remove people that, um, you know, are a threat to our national security. But the change in mindset that's necessary there is to understand that these are people, they are not committing any crime, they're simply trying to exist safely, they're simply trying to have a, a safe, good life for themselves and their families. Um, and there's no need to be so um, punitive with the punishment. And I think that change in mindset towards a human rights, um, understanding that they're people and not threats is something that needs to happen, you know, not, not just with the Malaysian government, but with governments across the Asia-Pacific region, governments across all the regions, across the world, and with the public as well. And I think once we, that's obviously really hard to achieve, but I think once we start understanding and research, just to segue quickly, this research, this conversation all works towards encouraging those changes with each other, with our listeners. And I think once that can happen, we can slowly shift away from being so strict about our own perspective about security and uh, migration. Yeah, it is. It is a. It sounds like a complex issue with multiple factors. Because what I'm hearing is that, um, despite the dis- despite uh, the vision and and the push from from various activists and, and researchers, uh, there's a lot of like two factors, right? I mean, the, there's uh, there's the um, mindset factor of of looking at of how the government and maybe like a lot of the general public views um, migrants, like migrant communities. But also at the same time, there's also like bureaucratic challenges, uh, which I think Joshua, you've also explored. There's like, um, there are law and law, uh, legal challenges, governance challenges, the fragmented governance that you mentioned, uh, capacity challenge, and also something that you mentioned, uh, a democratic deficit. So can you talk more about these uh, about these forces that you that you called them uh, Joshua yeah so so I, I spoke about uh four different forces that I think that I think really relates and builds on Hannah's point around uh, you know why aren't we really moving uh, uh forward this issue and I think I take a, a broader perspective and thinking really about the last uh, 12 years uh you know we've been fighting and struggling uh to end child detention uh um for, for over a decade right now. And yes, there has been like commitments, uh, lots of statements of intent, uh, since 2019. Um, and then 2022, uh, we had the ATD, uh, launch. Um, but, but we're not moving forward. So I started to, to kind of think about what, what, uh, other factors are, are at play here that's contributing to this, uh, prolonged delay. And, and the, the first thing I think it's really how we see people. So really, uh, talking, uh, speaking to Hannah's point is that immigration authorities, uh, people, uh, general public, uh, have had this, uh, very potentially a very, very dangerous and unidimensional view of, uh, 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 people, uh, like children as, uh, seeing them as quote unquote, uh, illegal immigrants, uh, under the, um, Pendatang, uh, label. And what we're not seeing, and, and that's the thing also part, the, the problem there is just so how journalists also potentially report on these issues is that whenever there's a raid, there's a detention, uh, 
uh, everyone is labeled um, you know, blank as uh, uh, as pendata without any any uh, any uh, uh, conversation around you know, their age, their vulnerability levels, uh, migratory circumstances. Uh, and, you know the the question of why you know why are they they in Malaysia? And if you bring bring it back to my uh, the story of my first explainer, it's uh, it tells tells you the story of say who's a refugee child uh, who who had to flee very dangerous circumstances uh, in in uh, Myanmar to to um, to to get to safety because he was uh, accused at, uh, to be a uh, part of the rebel group, but when he he came to Malaysia. He was detained, uh, so he's underage. Um, and later on, he was released, and then released back to Myanmar. Um, but when he was in, in, in Myanmar, uh, he called his mom, and the mom said, "It's too dangerous. You have to leave again." And so we're not understanding these kinds of like, very human dynamics. Is that they, uh, that people don't leave unless they have um, have, have no choice, uh, and they are they're forced to leave and compelled to leave. And so, how do we actually? Get the public to actually understand uh, that uh, beyond the the black cat labels, uh, the dehumanizing labels that we have, um, and yeah, I talk about fragmented government governance as well. Uh, I think that uh, we have to we can't think of government as this monolith, uh, you know, one direction body. You have to think of it as as tiers and labels and uh, uh, layers. Um, it's like this. Uh, uh, Black box of uh, a maze because you have uh, decision makers, policy makers, uh, but you also have the civil service, um, and all of them have to work together in some form of way to actually implement things. Um, and if you're not working together, uh, you know, worsen, which is worsened by the government changes, uh, then things are not going to move. Um, and there are different interests as well within uh, the uh, different levels of government, and that complicates uh, implementation of uh, you know ATDs. Uh, yeah, and I talk about capacity as well. There's this, uh, you know, sometimes it's very dangerous discourse that oh, uh, we can't take care of our own children. Uh, how can we take care of other children? Uh, but if you look at the numbers, uh, you know, there are some nine million children living in Malaysia, uh, and. You have some 48,000 refugee children in Malaysia, so that's only 0.5% of the population. But you also have to think of it from a, a, a broader perspective that if you were to take care of these children and work together as civil society to, to, to take care of these children from governments and our, using our institutions, we will actually eventually also build the child protection system altogether. Uh, there's so much like cross-learning, cross-germination that we can do um, if we were to take care of these children with very different backgrounds, certainly it is it helps to professionalize the uh, social um, social work uh, work as well in Malaysia. Um, yeah, and finally, I think the the point that I think is is it's is extremely important as well um, uh, is also the democratic deficit that uh, we don't have uh, enough spaces to actually talk about these issues uh, openly and. Uh, these sensitive issues, uh, and 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 that's that's in part because of our, our laws uh, that you could that there are many laws that criminalizes uh, uh, journalists reporting on these issues, and there has been incidents where activists have also been caught up uh, because they voiced out uh, uh, against uh, detention centers. Um, there is also a lack of transparency and access to to these detention centers, so we don't have 
very consistent information, disaggregated information. So how it's very hard to talk about an issue when you don't have uh, uh, these uh, constant sources of uh, information, which also was why I really wanted to to write these articles to bring in different information. And and yeah, finally, is that we we do need to have more public spaces to learn about these issues that I I think we are so lacking. Um, so yeah, it's complicated. The why is complicated, and and we I mean these are some of my speculations that's you know, grounded in some realities uh, um, that I think could could give the give, give uh, listeners a sense of how complicated it is. Uh, but but yeah. Yeah, it looks like it looks like there's just a lot of factors at play here. Not only, um, not only in the in the practices of of child detention, but also, um, you know, the the media freedom in general, like democracy, the state of democracy in uh, in Malaysia, like the, the the public space, how whether you're allowed to say or do certain things, or like access to information, as as you mentioned. Uh, but also uh, the awareness, like the geopolitical awareness of how we frame and understand uh, these communities who come into Malaysia, why they come there and why it's not just so easy for them to, to return. And, you know, um, just it's a whole, um, it is a complicated issue. And but before we begin to like untangle this, um, maybe just, just one more point, because, um, you know, you, you mentioned the lines of like release, refrain and restore, maybe... Can can you can you talk uh, a bit more about about that about those three uh, those three things and whether we need to uh, do all of them at the same time whether um, you know whether we have to focus on on one before doing the other um, Joshua this is uh, this was mentioned in your research but if, Hannah if you have any uh, thoughts or, or opinions you can yeah feel free to jump in yeah so I've uh, broadly uh, uh, wrote um, the the different uh, lines of action that needs to be taken if we really want to protect uh, childhoods. And this is drawn from uh, several conversations with uh, child rights activists. And I didn't want to be prescriptive, uh, but I wanted to have, uh, you know, uh, broad lines of thinking. Um, and and the first step uh, or one of the key steps is to release uh, children. So regardless of um, um, what their migratory status is or circumstances are, uh, we need to 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 work towards releasing all children. Uh, so it's not just to have a half-hearted program that's uh, that's only releasing uh, children that uh, can be repatriated, um, but also all kinds of children, uh, especially uh, particularly even the the Rohingya community uh, who are stateless. Um, and as I spoke about restraint. Uh, you need measures, uh, policies, um, programs to to uh to not uh to protect uh children from being re uh detained uh because it doesn't make sense if you release children and then after that uh you know, they 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 are re-detained and then put into detention centers then it just becomes this revolving door and and it's another you know uh immense cost uh for taxpayers as well we don't think about that concurrently and and finally it's about restore measures right uh you know, when, when children are released, you need to meet uh, each children where they are, each child where, where they're at, uh, based on the principle of the best interest of the child. Uh, so really look into determining what this uh, particular kid, kid needs, whether it's, um, you know, healthcare, whether it's education or, 
uh, uh, whether it's uh, some kind of reunification uh, with their families, uh, if they are unaccompanied or separated, uh, each child will have very different circumstances. Um, but all of this um, you know, fits very well with uh, uh, basically alternative to detention. Uh, a meaningful alternative to detention would think through all these lines and uh, would be community-based, uh, would be sensitive to the needs of the child, uh, would be, would involve uh, different, different parties and uh, different, uh, uh, different stakeholders to, 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 to ultimately the goal here is to protect the child so that they, there's no more harm done onto them. Um, Hannah, do you have any any further thoughts on this in relation to your research and your and your uh, and your work in in ATD throughout all these years? Thanks, Bonnie, and thanks, Joshua, for all those comments. I think I won't keep my comment very long here. I think I just want to underscore, echo, um, and highlight what Joshua said. If the first thing that needs to happen is release children, just release children. Um, I think that's what the ATD work for over. A decade has been um, working towards detention is no place for a child. Let's release children and let's do whatever it takes. Um, let's not um, bog ourselves down with um, bureaucracy. Let's release them. Let's embrace the the nature of a pilot. Learn from the mistakes and strengthen the program from there. Don't delay the release of children anymore. And then, in policy, in policy and law, put in those. Um, provisions to keep children out of detention entirely. That's what I really, really want to see, and that's what lots of child advocates and uh, migration advocates want to see as well. So it's my key message. Yeah, and, and you feel, uh, to follow up on your earlier point, you feel that uh, one of the most important things to achieve this goal of releasing children is that we should invest in increasing public awareness on refugee issues. Um, so yeah, do you think how how do you think how do you think uh, we can we can achieve that? What kind of advocacy uh, that we need to do? What kind of I don't know, like research or journalistic reporting? What's been the most effective in increasing public awareness, and what we need to do more? Thanks, Bonnie. I think my answer is going to be a bit depressing. <laughs> so, um, I don't think that with immigration detention specifically, that public awareness is high. So I think there needs to be still a lot more work. I, I can't really speak to what's been successful. Um, I think there is a, a small, maybe a small bubble of people, um, maybe adjacent to the advocates, um, the advocate community that is aware of this and you know has participated in public events before. But I think largely pe people, Malaysians, globally, the public are not really aware of the, the harms of immigration detention, nor are they working to end it in any way. I think there's no vested interest in seeing an end towards immigration detention at this point. Um, so I think that a lot of advocacy still needs to be done with the public. Um, ideally, then we would move into that mobilization and have advocacy by the public as well. I think this is going to be nothing big and fancy, but I think a lot of the advocacy that needs to happen with the public is just to keep having the conversations about um, immigration detention, the harms of child detention, the work that's gone into it, um, the existence of alternatives to detention as a model, as a framework, um, aside from immigration detention as a tool. I think 
talking about that issue and keeping it on people's um, agendas is really important. I think also, um, and I think I've said this to Joshua before as well, people that oppose um, the trial rights, that sounds awful, people that are pro-immigration detention or the, de the detention of migrants can be quite vocal about it and they can be quite public about their opinion, they're commenting it on social media, they're making their feeling of pro-detention very known and that's what the community, the the movement against immigration detention needs to do as well. I think we need to be a lot more visible about our stance against immigration detention and signal to everyone, signal to the government, signal to policymakers the shift in public opinion, because that to them that's also that will also drive up their political will to make a, a difference, to make a change. And I said it in my research and public opinion is so critical to achieving long-term change. And until this public opinion is swayed positively, there can be no substantial or sustained change at a policy level. So it's the long game for sure, but I think we can get there. I think this conversation is already, you know, one of those things that's a great effort in keeping that conversation going and getting it on people's radars. Um, yeah, thank you. That's that's also what we, what we hope to do here, um, to just... Again, to just get a word out and get the conversation going. Uh, but Joshua, uh, one of the things that I really liked about your, uh, about all of your 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 research, uh, actually, is that you, um, despite it being like like a research and an explainer, you provide all of date, all of the data and all of those. Um, you tend to just really focus on individual. Uh, individuals, like the experiences of, of particular individuals, which I think provides a really uh, a much needed dimension in the uh, in the explainers that, that we put out. But also, um, was this ever, and, and I'm aware that um, this issue, like the ch uh, children detention, is part of a larger issue in uh, enforced migration that you work on, even outside of the uh, outside of the context of Malaysia, right? So, I'm wondering if this is like a conscious decision on your part to highlight individual stories in the hopes that, or in, in maybe, um, you know, in the recognition that these kinds of stories are more uh, effective in swaying public opinion? Or, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? I think if you look at the explainers, uh, and, and for these two particular explainers, uh, when I, I actually crafted up a learning map, and in that learning map, I said, if you want to learn about issues, start with lived experiences. And because lived experiences are complex and messy, uh, but they are grounded, uh, and, and they are extremely informative. And, and I like to write my explainers in that way. So to start with lived experiences, uh, uh, really moves, uh, you know, people where they're at, uh, individual experiences. And from there, you know, tease out, things that we can explain to the public. So it's uh, really what I call like a, a narrative uh, explainer or a narrative-based uh, uh, explanatory narrative. Um, yeah, because because if you start with, uh, you know, very dense uh, technical material, um, you know, it, that, that learning process can be quite difficult, uh, especially if you're not, um, you're not exposed to the, the issue. So, so definitely, yes, it was a conscious decision. Um, but I also think equally, it's important to to be listening to uh, uh, people's experiences, which you know, it's not uh, it's not a singular experience that represents all experiences. It's uh, there are so a multitude of different experiences, 
uh, uh, that we need to try our best to, to grapple. Um, yeah, and but I did also want to add on to uh, Hannah's point about the, the public and just like thinking out loud here that uh, I think any any kind of uh, public public awareness strategy. Sorry, uh, can you hear me then? Yeah. So any form of uh, public awareness strategy uh, also really needs to think about who your audiences are, um, and I think. Um, I think for this issue, there could be very different strategies to speak to different audiences that uh, uh, when we talk about the public. So university students uh, uh, are a great uh, group of people to be talking to. They're talking civil society. Uh, that will be a very different uh, messaging strategy when they, uh, you're speaking to the, the, the civil service and a different uh, strategy. And I think as uh, advocates or writers, you need to be able to, to, to write to different audiences and speak to different audiences. And even within university students, if you're speaking to law students, uh, you'll be speaking a very different way. If you're speaking to sociology students or poli poli students, you also tailor your message. And I think, yeah, working, working from that, uh, is, is extremely important, uh, uh, as well. So just taking out that. But I think I think I, I do agree with that. But I want to also um, highlight your or echo your sentiment on like uh, lived experiences can really uh, bring out. I mean, despite despite you know speaking to different audiences, lived experience is something that we could all relate with. And I think um, to 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 go back a bit further, I think that's one of our strengths in in this advocacy, right? I mean, obviously, there the the opposing side can defend detention. Maybe they have their own narratives of how, like, um, yeah, how how to portray um, people in detention as potential criminals, if not already criminals, which is something that we really need to uh, dismantle. But when we when we have the lived experience, the narratives of the lived experiences uh, on our side about the, uh, arguing for a rights-based um, policies, I do think that it can uh, move people as all stories do, right? So um, I guess that also again um mentioning uh returning back to uh your point joshua and and also um hannah um and i guess this is uh this is the 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 a wrap-up question for for both of you um what are the role of like researchers and and writers and and these people you know who work in advocacy by uh by either researching or writing or like interviewing lived experiences what is the role of 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 these people of, of research, of narratives in the advocacy efforts, in bringing together the public, in swaying uh, the public opinion, increasing public awareness on these issues, and eventually help create change. Um, Hannah, you want to go first? Thanks, Bonnie. Um, big question. I would like to start by just sharing one point about lived experience um, narratives. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to, e to echo both of you that they are so important and impactful and Bonnie, when you said um, we can all relate to it i think that is true and i think most people are not bad in you know bad or whatever that means but when when they are confronted with lived experience they it, it is such a part of them that's that's 
inherently good. I would like to I would like to believe, and they're able to empathize with it. They're able to relate to it, and they're able to want to help and make it better. And this is something that I think I see a lot in my work as well, um, even with governments and immigration and across not just in Malaysia but you know in the APEC region. They, they are, they're willing to have those conversations and they're willing to have um, a mindset change. But of course, it is a system, right, that we've been talking about that sometimes makes it hard for that um, empathy to be practiced. Um, but to answer your question, um, I think research is just a really useful tool when it comes to advocacy work. Um, and that's really what it is, I feel. It's a, it's a means towards an end, right, research. It's so useful in being able to document stories, document information, document narratives. Um, re research can pull a bunch of different knowledge together and highlight it for different purposes, right? Highlight it in a way that's more accessible to the public, engaging the public to raise their awareness. It can be structured in a way that's, you know, a policy brief. So targeting governments with um, very concise information and very concise recommendations, helping them make a change. So research is just so useful in being able to uniquely cater information to different audiences. It's useful in being able to pull together large sources of information, identify patterns and trends, which are, of course, you know, really strong um, arguments to to change opinions or to speak about an issue, not just with government, but with people as well. Um, research, at the end of the day, is a tool for learning, right? It creates and foregrounds sometimes knowledge that's not often talked about, or it creates new knowledge. It presents new theories, new speculations, new narratives um, to for people to work with. And I think what's really useful about research is that um, it helps build an evidence for people to refer to it in for example in the context of my re research it helps build specific evidence as well for example just referring to the report we were discussing earlier that's localized evidence in a Malaysian context about the Rohingya refugee community which is very specific and it helps to uh, share recommendations about how change can actually be started and be achieved um, and I think research is also really useful in the spaces we are able to create with research. So it's not just that we produce research and then we put it online and then it's done. Research is often used to start other conversations, like this conversation where we're talking about research, Joshua's and my different research, actually Joshua's and my similar research, and having this conversation, which is exploring it deeper, talking about other things. Um, when we do report launches with the government, this creates a space where we're able to talk directly with government about what's in the research and beyond that, what changes need to happen. So I think research as a tool is quite multifaceted and really useful to not just, not just the researcher, right, in achieving um, that, that um, goal that they set up, the issue that they set out to unpack, but it also becomes useful to civil society as a tool for advocacy. It becomes useful to the public as a tool for improving their knowledge and becomes useful to the government for, um, being an evidence base towards achieving change. So I think that is my answer. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you, Hannah. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I do I do definitely agree with that because I do think um, 
knowledge sharing itself is is ultimately very important. Just balancing out the uh, the the information and the access to information as well as the lived experiences that we uh, that we that we've been talking about can really uh, make a difference. Uh, Joshua, what are what are your thoughts on this? And maybe just just to add on a, a bit uh, a bit to that question, um, if the listeners here are are listening. Um, how can they help? How can they help participate in pushing for all of these advocacy efforts? Yeah, I think Hannah, you've uh, you've you've you've, you've uh, summarized uh, the uh, the multifacetedness of, of research and uh, and all the uh, usefulness of it and and where it can bring us. I think for me, if I were to to uh, just to, to talk about what research uh, researchers role. I think research uh, from the outset is a very powerful tool, um, and we need to see as as uh, your research as generative, and to uh, to practice research as such, uh, but to also see as such. What do I mean by that? It's that we want to do research that is generative of new relationships, new ideas, uh, new platforms. Uh, you know. Uh, um, Research that you know brings people together uh, to talk about the, the important issues, and uh, and also to always think about the afterlife of research as well. Uh, I want to challenge our researchers out there, and I, I put that challenge on myself as well. Is that we can't be writing um, and, and putting our research on on the shelves. Uh, we need to bring it out there to the public. Different aspects of of that that one document uh, can have very different. Uh, new life uh, that have very different impact. Uh, today, I was speaking to someone around um, a a a uh, actually a refugee leader about research actually, and and uh, this this uh, person told me that you know, we need research that uh, helps people feel as well. Uh, that's why I said uh, what did, what does he mean by that is that you you do the core research, but that's not the the final step is that what you do with the contents of the research, where you could use aspects of it to make you know, documentaries or uh, have other conversations with uh, panel discussions. It needs to keep generating uh, your feelings, action, and and whatnot. So, yeah, that's kind of where I how I think about research uh, and why I I I I really believe in that process. Um, but even research itself is uh, is generative of relationships because true as a researcher, uh, you're speaking to a whole array of different people, um, and those relationships also become uh, part of uh, your life too. So it's it's a it's an incredibly meaningful process uh, that has also other active potential. Um, I think to your to your final question around uh, what the public can do, um, I think. You know, take the research that we are talking about uh, today, the explainers, uh, use it as seed for conversations, go organize reading groups in uh, in your schools and universities. Um, you focus on, on, on talking about these issues and um, bring bring these things up to uh, your elected representatives, to uh, to members of parliament, uh, people around you. Uh, use what uh, we've presented uh the new narrative uh, and on the IDC report uh, as seeds for uh, to generate questions. I think that's that's the one immediate thing I think you guys can do. Thank you, Joshua. Um, Hannah, you want to add a, add a bit of a um, add some points for the non-researchers and what the, what they can do. Thanks, Bonnie. 
Um, no points, but again, to echo Joshua, that I think the most important thing that people can do is to keep talking about it. Um, and I said, I said it earlier, but make your public opinion known as well, whether it's through commenting it on social media, whether it's um, walking through the streets with a placard, but do that safely, if, if at all, whether it's emailing your MPs and emailing your government um, representatives. Keep informing yourself, keep reading research, um, keep talking about it and make your opinion known. Okay, thank you so much, Hannah, and thank you so much, Joshua. It's been a pleasure uh, discussing this topic with you. And that wraps up our discussion with Joshua Lowe and Hannah Jamunathan. We've provided links to their research in the show notes at newnarrative.com. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are the issue of children and detention centers isn't all that new to you. But it's easy to get lost in a bubble and assume, like I still do sometimes on a lot of issues, that the facts are obvious. But they're not. A lot of people still don't know how much children are being harmed and how much we're funding it through taxpayer money. As the issue that kept coming up in our discussions, increasing public awareness and swaying public opinion to pressure the government to release the children remains the most important thing we can do. So make some noise, share this podcast and Joshua's and Hannah's research, be vocal on social media, create your own discussion groups. If you're a Malaysian, call your MPs. The over 1,000 children in detention centers could really, really use your voice. My name is Bonibel Rambatan, and this has been Southeast Asia Dispatches. Brought to you by New Narrative and produced by Dania Yudo. I'll see you around.